Yeah, last week um, we looked at two well-known stories, the wedding at Cana, I see they got you as well, jolly good, Um, and the cleansing of the temple, which in John's gospel follows immediately after that first one. These two incidents bring into sharp focus a contrast which was first introduced uh, in the prologue, chapter 1, and which is going to be repeated again and again as we go on in this gospel. The way that John has chosen to tell the story of Jesus is one of the light of Christ coming into a dark world. In chapter 1, he spoke about it in universal terms, the effect this light has had on the whole world, some people different from others. Many who should have recognized Jesus for what he was failed to do so, but to those who did, he gave the right to become children of God. But in chapter 2, he then gets a bit more specific, contrasting the responses to the light of two different groups of people. The rather unintellectual, we gather, Galileans, the ordinary people uh, at the wedding party, they invited Jesus and his new bunch of friends to join them in this a high spot in their ordinary little lives in their ordinary little town. And they saw their water turned into wine. But what about the sophisticated religious Judeans at the Passover feast in Jerusalem, the religious as well as political center of Israel? For them, Jesus turned up uninvited and in fact turned everything upside down as well. As the pastor and songwriter Danny Daniels memorably put it, Jesus gets into your stuff. You might like it or you might not, but he does get into your stuff. So you've seen, get, you've seen Jesus getting into the world stuff in chapter 1 and into the stuff of two different groups of people in chapter 2. Now in number three, chapter 3, we see him getting into the stuff of one particular man, that is Nicodemus, who I'm calling Nicodemus the far-seeing Pharisee. Little pun. Very small pun. To John's first readers, like most of us, familiar with one or two of the other Gospels, the Pharisees already had rather a bad name. They were the religious supermen of their time, experts in Bible knowledge, clean living, religiously observant, and never seen to put a foot wrong. Some of us know Christians a bit like that. Don't look here. But Jesus clashed with those guys often, calling them hypocrites, blind guides, whited sepulchres, all that sort of thing. Because they knew a lot about God, but Jesus calls into serious doubt whether they actually knew God himself. If they had, they'd surely have been more humble, more merciful, more accepting of sinners like Jesus himself was. All their wisdom hadn't brought them close to God. St. Paul puts it like this in a letter to another bunch of people who prided themselves on their wisdom and knowledge and intelligence. That's 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 21. I'll just read it to you. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's quite a good little commentary on John's gospel, isn't it? And a little later, 1 John 3, 19, he says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. 
But John doesn't want to just get us, uh, us to go away with a, um, a kind of oversimplified idea that there's a, this sort of inverted spiritual snobbery in God's kingdom. The gospel is not just for the simple souls of rustic Galilee, whooping it up at a wedding. It's also available to the city slickers in Jerusalem in the holy historic Passover festival. Because as chapter 3 opens, for the first of three times in this gospel, along comes a man called Nicodemus. Here's a wise and learned man, a Pharisee, who bucks the trend and comes to Jesus as the truly wise and learned always do, in humility, to learn, not to criticize. But before we get to that, at the end of chapter 2, we find an interesting little comment on Jesus himself and the frame of mind in which he enters into that conversation. I want to read from John 2, 23 to chapter 3, verse 16. When he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. As we are going to look at the passage today, it falls quite naturally into three parts. Chapter 223 to 3 verse 2, which describes the situation for the conversation. In verses 3 to 7, Jesus confronts Nicodemus with the necessity of conversion. Then in verses 9 to 16, he explains the means of salvation. So the passage flows from situation to standoff, a kind of standoff, 
where Jesus kind of pushes Nicodemus away a little bit. And then solution. Situation, standoff, solution. Number one, the situation. The last verses of chapter two describe what we used to call, back in the old days, when I was a young Christian, easy believism. Jesus was out there doing miracles or signs, as John likes to call them, and for many, seeing was believing. We don't know exactly what verse 23 means when it says they believed in his name. But it must surely be connected with the fact that the name Jesus originally meant God saves. So perhaps they had at least an inkling that Jesus might be the coming Messiah. Now it seems that John wants to raise a question in the reader's mind at this point as to the true nature of saving faith. Because this surely is not it. Putting myself in Jesus' shoes, if I got a favorable reaction like he has, right at the start of my ministry, I might have thought that I was on a roll, that the whole of Jerusalem was going to get converted and then the rest of Israel as well. But Jesus, as we see in verse 24, did not. We used to have a saying, I used to be in the police back in my youth, and um, in the crime squad we had a saying, why would I trust you? I know you. As far as we know, Jesus never spoke those actual words to anyone, but here he displays something like the same sort of attitude. As a rule, he was able to treat people with enormous love and acceptance, but without actually committing himself to them. There's probably a lesson here for all those of us who are involved in pastoral ministry of any kind, and it's a hard one to learn. Depending on our personality types, we all tend either towards emotional over-engagement with people or too much distance between us and those we lead. But the best description I know of the right balance between the two is thick skin, soft heart. If you only have one or the other, you'll soon soon fall into having it the wrong way around. A hard heart and a thin skin, which is kind of the worst thing you could be, and no one will want to know you. I think Jesus had the softest heart of anyone, but because he was so close to God, he was protected from ever having his heart broken by the foolishness and wickedness of those with whom he had to deal. John Wimber used to say, people are mean. But that's just people doing people stuff. We have to learn to concentrate on God doing God stuff. And as we shall see, Jesus was the absolute master of that noble art. His trust was in God, not in people. In verse 25, his concentration on God enabled him to operate an extraordinary level of perception about people. The, the, the wisdom and, and knowledge that comes to us occasionally as a gift of the Holy Spirit, the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom, was a constant experience, it seems, for Jesus himself. So when this learned Pharisee comes to see him, he knows exactly what to say and how to be. And he's able to come to some, you know, say some pretty uncomfortable confrontational things to him without causing offence and bringing the interview to a sudden end. We don't know very much about Nicodemus apart from the facts, verse 1, that he was a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews, and verse 10, that Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. I don't know why the ESV says a teacher, the Greek plainly says the teacher of Israel. So at the very least, this must mean that he was a well-known Bible scholar. People often say that that Nicodemus came at night because he was afraid to be associated openly with Jesus, but I'm not sure that's true. 
In the first place, it's not clear that Jesus had yet become much of a, an, an open hate figure for people. And in the second, there were plenty of reasons why it would be a good idea to wait until it was late before approaching Jesus. We know from verses 2.23 and 3 verse 2 that Jesus was doing many signs, in other words, miracles. He was probably healing a lot of people. And we know that at times like that, huge crowds would gather around him. So if you wanted a proper discussion with the guy, you've got to wait until those, those people go away. That would mean waiting until night. Also, if we look ahead a little to chapter 7, it is that same Nicodemus who's going to speak up for Jesus as a minority of one on the ruling council in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 19, in the face of all the terrors of Jesus' crucifixion, it is Nicodemus again who helps with the burial of the body of this uh, hated, loathed criminal, Jesus. These are not the actions of a scaredy cat. Nicodemus is an independent thinker who's not afraid to stand up for what's right, even when everyone else is angrily going the opposite direction. His approach to Jesus in verse 2 is humble, addressing him as rabbi. And it's conciliatory, saying, not I, but we know you are a teacher who's come from God. Now, I think he might be sticking his neck out a little bit there, including his associates in that we, rather than just saying I. But he does it anyway. Perhaps he's a real reconciler. Perhaps he thinks he can bring them round necessary if necessary, or, or uh, around later, or, or, or they'll come round of their own accord once they've thought it through properly as he has. But anyway, this is more than just a social call. Nicodemus is an influential religious leader, and such a person doesn't seek out a, a one-on-one with an itinerant preacher from backwards Galilee of all places, unless there's something really important at stake. So I think his unspoken question is whether Jesus might actually be the Messiah, the coming saviour of Israel. Remember, John the Baptist has already said so in no uncertain terms. And that's certainly what the first disciples believed about Jesus. So Nicodemus has worked out that Jesus must in some way be God's representative. A great spiritual power is clearly at work in these miracles. Healing only comes from God. The only question that remains is whether this man might actually be the Christ. And if he is, what does that require of Nicodemus and the people he represents? The scene is set then for what happens next, which I call number two, the standoff, verses three to eight. Nicodemus has opened the debate very respectfully, apparently treating treating Jesus as at least an equal. And considering their relative status in worldly terms, that is in itself a possible indication that he thinks Jesus might be much more than just an ordinary teacher. But the dialogue moves on more quickly than he probably expected because Jesus cuts straight to the chase. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. At first glance, we might think Nicodemus could be forgiven for answering, who said anything about a kingdom? I didn't say mention a kingdom. But Jesus, knowing that the real question is, are you the coming king? And if so, how do I sign up to be part of your kingdom? Move straight to answer that question. I've often wondered whether Jesus might be actually affirming Nicodemus here, saying, you'd never have worked this out unless God had already started a regenerative process in your heart. And perhaps that remains a possible interpretation. But I think the emphasis of the conversation is probably leaning slightly the other way. 
What you really want is to be part of my coming kingdom. Well, you're going to have to be born again. I don't think we should be too concerned that the ESV puts it born from above, by the way. Both interpretations, born again, born from above, are quite possible with the Greek. And scholars disagree about which is right. So we'll leave the scholars to it. The effect is actually the same. And Jesus is about to explain in any case what he means by it. Once again, I think Nicodemus might have had a bit of a bad press regarding verse 4. He's sometimes characterized as being defensive or even mocking here. But as one of my commentaries points out, what he might in fact be saying is, of course, I understand. We do need a completely new start. Nothing else will do. But how can that happen? If that's right, then it's exactly how I myself felt many years ago when I came to Jesus at the age of 18. I knew my life was messed up. My friend had asked me if I wanted a new one, a new start. My reply was, of course I do. Wouldn't anyone? And when she told me that that's precisely what Jesus had promised, if I repented and trusted in him, I didn't hesitate. And as my tears of sorrow suddenly turned into tears of joy, I knew that something had changed at the very core of my being. I had that new beginning. I had been born again. And in fact, Jesus' answer in verses 5 to 8 is exactly what Nicodemus would have needed to hear if, as I suspect, he was really coming to Jesus as a penitent. There is much scholarly debate about the meaning of birth in water and the spirit. But I think the simplest answer is also the one that's most in keeping with the context. Chapter 1 spoke at length about the crowds coming to John the Baptist to be baptized, do you remember? In verse 24, what he told the Pharisees' messengers about his baptism. And Nicodemus, as a leading Pharisee, must have had a head full of questions about baptism, not least concerning John's obvious reference to the Christ being standing among them right there and then. Baptism, in its nature, was very like the ceremonial washing that you had to go through if you wanted to become a Jew from being a Gentile. But John had been baptizing people who were already Jews, and they came in their hundreds. So something new was afoot. Now, it might be that Nicodemus himself had already been baptized. We don't know. Or we don't know. But according to what we just read at the end of chapter 2, Jesus probably did know. When someone has a word of knowledge for you, facts like these are just suddenly exposed. When they have a word of wisdom for you, they can cut to the chase exactly as Jesus is doing here. If you want, we can pray during our ministry time for you to receive those gifts. To me, this interpretation makes much more sense of what's going on here than any, any notion that Jesus is being needlessly obscure with Nicodemus because he didn't like Pharisees very much. Now, I think he's explaining in terms that Nicodemus should understand that entry into the kingdom of God is dependent not only on the repentance that you have to show if you go to be baptized, birth in water, see Matthew 3, verses 7 to 12, but also on a divine rebirth from above. More, verse 6, reborn in the spirit. The one is a visible physical sign of repentance. The other, as verse 8 says, is an invisible and inexplicable thing like the wind. But like the wind, it's highly effective 
on the things it touches. Now, this is a, a play in both the Greek and Hebrew languages on uh, the wind. In, e- in, each, in each language, the same word is used for wind, breath, spirit. If we want to know which way the wind is blowing, we look at the flag. We look at the weather vane on top of the church steeple. Or if we're a cricketer, we might take up a handful of grass and throw it in the air and see which way it lands. If you want to know whether someone has been born again or not, look at the outcome of their life. Nicodemus, like us, was not to rely on religious observance or scriptural understanding. By their fruit, you shall know them, Jesus says. He was going to need a whole new life if he was to be pleasing to God. And I think we can see from those later references I mentioned that that's exactly what happened in his life. In which case, one of the ideas John is wanting to introduce to us is that of a convert who doesn't drop everything and just go and follow Jesus and be a religious person, but someone who stays in exactly the same role that he was when Jesus called him, holds that role and does it for Jesus, as most of us will have to do in our lives. So that's the situation and the standoff, and I hope you can see how important the context is to understanding what's really going on here. I steamrolled quite deliberately over the chapter break between two and three, Because though it doesn't really come out in the English, particularly in the ESV, there is an unbreakable link in the language, in the Greek, between the verses on either side of that break. Literally, it would go something like this, verses 25 into uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Jesus had no need of witness concerning man, for he knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Do you see what I mean? It's the one leads to the other inexorably. In Bible study, apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, of course, context is king. Without knowing the situation, it's pretty near impossible to understand either the standoff that follows or the solution to which we now come. Number three, the solution, verses 9 to 16. According to some interpretations, which I don't think take full account of context, this whole debate takes place on an extremely shallow level. And if that's right, it's really a case of mystical Jesus on the one hand saying serious, serious soteriological stuff to dim-witted Nick, thicky Nicky on the other side, who of course completely misses the point because he's one of those pesky legalistic Pharisees. But for my money, that doesn't ring true at all. Certainly not when we look ahead and see the outcome, the fruit in Nicodemus' life, the how the wind of the Holy Spirit has turned his life around in chapters uh, 19 and 7. In fact, it makes perfect sense if in verse 9, what Nicodemus um, is actually doing is he's seeing exactly what Jesus meant up to that point, but he's still at a loss to understand how a just God can forgive people the vast weight of their sins and just give them a new life. Of course, as a a teacher, a Jewish teacher. He was familiar with the great prophecies like Ezekiel 38, uh, 36, 26 that speaks of God putting a new heart into his people. In fact, I think that verse probably sprang to mind immediately for him, his disciplined Jewish mind, because it also speaks of God putting a new spirit within us. And that effect would be doubly reinforced if he also thought of the following chapter, chapter 37, where Ezekiel is taken to the famous Valley of Dry Bones. Do you remember? 
And God raises those bones, not only to give them bodies, but to breathe life into them. How does that come? He prophesied to the wind, the wind-breath spirit, the ruach. This becomes pneuma in the New Testament. The prophesying to the wind-breath spirit, which comes on them and brings them back to be a living, breathing army. So these ideas almost certainly would pop into the mind of the, the Jewish leader. So I think Nicodemus' problem was not a complete failure to follow Jesus' drift concerning rebirth, but wondering how he could possibly appropriate this new life himself and how God could deal with the problem of sin and still remain a fair and just God. And if that's the case, then verses 14 to 16 clearly answers precisely those questions. What is less clear in modern English, where the word you can mean either you lot or you singular, um, is that Jesus is not referring to Nicodemus personally in verses 11 and 12. You don't get it. In fact, the yous there are plural, meaning something like you lot or the, the group you belong to. So it might look as if he's saying, look, thicky Nicky, I can't put it any more clearly than this. You just don't believe me. He's really, really not. I think he's saying something more like this. Verse 10, ask yourself, if you're regarded as one of the premier teachers in all Israel, and you are, and you struggle with this, what does that say about your whole belief system in the light of the Messiah and his coming kingdom? Verse 11, unlike you, we know what we're talking about. We've seen it for ourselves, but your lot don't believe us. Verse 12, these teachings are the simple things about what can happen to an ordinary man here on earth, and your lot don't believe it. There's no point at all, my going into the big picture with you guys about what's happening in heaven. Verse 13, I alone am eyewitness to these things, so of course my take on them is unique. That's why you've never heard them explained so simply and directly before. And just in case it's bothering you who that we is in verse 11, I don't think it really matters for our purposes today. He might mean Jesus and the disciples. He might mean Jesus and John the Baptist. But some say it's more likely Jesus and the Father or Jesus and the Holy Spirit whose miracles testify to the words that Jesus is saying. But moving seamlessly on from verse 13, where he talks about being the one who descended from heaven to earth, he then talks about being lifted up again at the crucifixion. He's going to be lifted up on a cross, literally and metaphorically standing between earth and heaven. When Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, it may be a specific reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man appears to be a name for the Messiah who will one day come. But Nicodemus would also have known of several references in other Jewish writings which refer to messianic figures as the Son of Man. And in our context today, it's perhaps also interesting to note the strong identification, once again, with Ezekiel, who constantly calls himself Son of Man, or God calls him, son of, addresses him as Son of Man. Another reason why Ezekiel would pop into the mind of the learned Jew. It's the most commonly used in Ezekiel of the whole Old Testament. And this thing about Moses and the serpent, do we all know the story? Yes. It's in, it's in Numbers 21, where Israel, in its wilderness wanderings, get attacked by a plague of serpents. 
At God's command, Moses makes a bronze serpent, often depicted as being mounted on a wooden stand in the shape of a cross, which he lifted up, and everyone who looked at it survived. Everyone else died. That was the earthly version, dealing with earthly mortality without bestowing immortality. But Jesus has come to be the heavenly version, verse 15, bringing eternal life to all who believe in him. And we finish with the well-known John 3.16, which many of us know and love out of its context, but which we now see in the setting where it belongs. This is the context that Jesus places it in, a direct correlation to the bronze serpent of Moses. And here's how one commentary describes the analogy. One, the ancient Israelites were guilty of disobedience and a grumbling and unthankful spirit. Two, they were under the condemnation of God and were being punished for their sin. Three, the object elevated before them was the emblem of their judgment. Four, they were unable to rescue themselves. Five, the poison of the serpents was deadly and there was no antidote. Six, they were urged to look at the serpent in order to receive life. As John puts it, the whole world is in darkness. But God sends the light into that darkness so that we might become sons of God. The whole world is bound for death, but God intervenes to save those who will believe, who will look to Jesus to give them eternal life. And the reason he does so is nothing less, and indeed nothing more, than John 3.16. God so loved the world. Our meta-narrative, the the system and story in which we live and move and have our being in this fallen world, has this grim background. In the words of Private Fraser in Dad's Army, we're doomed. Doomed! And into that background comes the Saviour, who is the light of the world, the Word of God. In fact, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last Word of God, that we might have life and have it abundantly. But above and beyond and behind all that, there is yet a bigger meta-narrative than that of darkness and destruction, where the light sometimes seems so very small. And we find it in John 3.16. Because at the back of Jesus' wonderful entry into this dark world, bigger by far than the whole created order, which I understand just in the last few days has been revealed to contain trillions, not billions, of galaxies stands the God who is love. And he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that you and I might not perish but might have eternal life. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into this world. We thank you that that was the, the plan you hatched with the Father and the Spirit for the salvation of mankind. We thank you for that great love of God which is shown in your willingness to set aside all those attributes of God and become a human being, even born as a baby. And grow up and 
have to live and learn as we do. To be guided by the Spirit, to be tempted, to suffer for your faith and for your outspokenness for God and eventually to sacrifice your life to take away the sins of the world. We thank you. We praise you for your resurrection, your ascension into heaven on our behalf and that in you we are now seated at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places, looking down, as it were, on this fallen world. But Lord, we pray that you will take our lives as we dedicate them to you again. We ask that you will make us also, like you, lights in this dark world. We ask for the empowering of your Holy Spirit to do that right. Would you come and bestow your gifts on your people right now and salvation on any here who, who need it? And if that's you, if the Lord's been speaking to you about coming to Jesus for the first time, now is a really good time to make that decision. And I would ask that when the others come forward for healing and for blessing and for gifting of the Holy Spirit, that you just come with them and say that that's what you need. Jesus will not turn you away. So we're going to pray now. And um, as we sing, just come forward for whatever it is that the Lord's put on your heart to ask for. He's here to give, here to bless, here to lighten our darkness.